I wouldn't call myself a perfectionist. However, at times over the years, I have exhibited tendencies in that direction. A perfectionist has an ideal in mind and gets very frustrated when things don't go as he thinks they should. He has little patience with those who deviate from prescribed paths. The perfectionist likes rules and regulations and clear-cut situations rather than ambiguity. Life should be neat and tidy rather than messy and inefficient. Otherwise, the perfectionist fears the whole enterprise will be irredeemably tainted, if not ruined. Well, my desire to stick to the script is well known, certainly in little things around the church. I'm a typical Episcopalian in not liking free-form church services. That can be unpredictable and sloppy and might leave tradition and even orthodoxy behind. Also, too much sort of room for the unexpected without a set liturgy. And also, I'm such a purist that, you know, I think really we're, we're pushing the boundaries when we celebrate Christmas during Advent. <laughs> Although I'm much less rigid than I used to be. <laughs> but my impatience with deviations from neatness and logic has gone beyond sadly, these small matters, to affect my relations with other people. When I was in my 20s and 30s, my dear sisters were not following the script. Of course, I wasn't thinking about myself not following the script. But anyway, so I was looking at my sisters and I said, their questionable early marriages ended in divorce after the birth of children. Since then, frankly, one of my two sisters has remained unhappy and doesn't seem interested in any of my ideas about what she should do. The perfectionist in me was surprised that life for those I love had become so complicated, so messy, especially given my sense that we came from respectable people who on the whole did what they were supposed to. To say the least, I had trouble dealing with the gap between my ideal of what should happen and the hard realities of what actually happened. One is tempted in that situation to judge people and even to give up on them. So, of course, guess what? I identify with the older brother in today's parable of the prodigal son. In my own mind, at least, he, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, in his own mind at least, he had followed the script, especially compared with his brother who had broken every rule in the book. He must have felt, isn't there any justice in the world? In this scenario we read about, bad behavior was in effect rewarded. Even this prodigal brother who had disrupted and disgraced his family had admitted that he did not deserve any favor. Yet, their own father was adding messiness to messiness and imprudent behavior to imprudent behavior by welcoming this deviant son with open arms and showering him with gifts. Rather than straightening things out, the father threatened to make them worse. 
from the older brother's perspective. The prodigal might, after repentance, return to decadent behavior and undermine the family fortune and reputation even more than before. The older brother probably thought that was very predictable. Certainly he felt slighted, not treated equally, not benefiting as much as the brother. But even more, this older brother felt frustrated because all hope of order and damage control had apparently gone out the window. Everything had gone to hell in a handbasket. From his point of view, he says, I'm not participating in that feast. The Pharisees, to whom Jesus was responding in telling this parable, had a similar outlook. They felt that this Jesus fellow was making a bad situation even worse. He seemed to be encouraging tax collectors, prostitutes, and other sinners by welcoming them and eating with them rather than rebuking and disciplining them. They might have thought, oh, he may be well-meaning, but he could easily be misunderstood as approving of these people's behavior. Ultimately, Jesus seemed to the Pharisees to be undermining their attempt to promote purity and correct behavior. They thought that was the answer to the Jews' situation. Moral reformation, keeping the law, and Jesus seemed to be making a messy situation even messier. He wasn't following what they thought was God's script. But of course, in fact, he was following God's script. From the standpoint of a perfectionist, God's behavior, the Lord's behavior, is outrageous. It goes against all worldly logic. We see this memorably in that parable in Matthew chapter 20, you may remember it, in which Jesus tells about a landowner who hired laborers to work in the fields at different points during the day, and then at the end of the day, he paid them each of them the same amount, regardless of how long they had worked. Now, that would offend our sense of justice, especially if we had been working all day. But God, you see, is wildly generous in dealing with people who are late, who are weak, who are flawed, who are slow to follow the script. Amazingly, God loves everyone the same. Undaunted by messiness, God enters into it with both feet, literally in the person of Jesus. His first concern is not that people move in the right direction efficiently or even that they follow all the rules. God's first concern is to bring people into new life by loving them unreservedly. St. Paul, our epistle writer, knew about this firsthand, the difference between the world's perspective and God's. You see, he was a Pharisee, literally, when he was called Saul, and he definitely had perfectionist tendencies. You see, early on, he thought of himself as walking the straight and narrow path, and he thought others should be forced to toe the line. And then, of course, on the Damascus Road, he encountered the living Christ who turned his world around. And Paul then realized what he said in Second Corinthians right before today's passage. 
that Christ died for all, so that those who live might live no longer for themselves, but for him who died and was raised for them. And, and because of this, Paul, Paul preached, we no longer regard others, this is in today's passage, from a human point of view. In the midst of all our sin and the messiness of our lives, God in our baptism has taken hold of us and made us a new creation in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. Now the older brother in us looks at other people and sees failure and sees little hope for the future. But God in Christ sees or has faith in us and hope for his people and most of all, love. Sinners are redeemed. That means our lives are made worth it. Because God sees our perfect destiny in our union with Christ in baptism, even when we continue to stray like the prodigal into a distant country. God looks on us with a more favorable light than we tend to look on each other. And perhaps God's hardest task in the work of redemption is to help those of us like the prodigal's older brother and St. Paul and me with perfectionist tendencies to realize how far we, along with others, have strayed from the script, how our lives are messy too, how, in other words, all of us are in the same boat as sinners in need of grace, in need of God's free gift of redemption in Christ. We may think, oh, that person's life is messier than mine. Maybe by the world's standards, but we know if we look deep down that we too need help. We too have strayed. And you know, when we admit this, it is a relief. It takes a huge load off our shoulders because now we can celebrate that we're not saved by our own efforts, by our keeping the law. We don't then have to be continually frustrated by that underlying sense that we too have played the prodigal. We can just admit what's true. And this is maybe one of the best parts. We can quit worrying about engineering other people's lives. And that is great news, all of this. And so to get back to our Lenten metaphor of our lives as a garden that needs cultivating, it is a blessed relief to know that we are not the chief gardener. Christ is. God is. I think that's why John in his gospel had Mary Magdalene at the empty tomb turning and seeing Jesus, but she thought it was the gardener. Well, Christ is the gardener, among other things. He provides the ultimate direction about what plants need strengthening, what needs changing in the garden, what needs to be eliminated. And, you know, he may encourage us to be more patient than we usually are with the weeds, with the withered leaves 
and the unruly branches. There's a time. There's a time for pruning and plucking off and so on. But God knows better than we do when that time is. God, in God's good time, will bring the garden to fruition, both our individual gardens and the garden of our corporate life. So our task is simpler than we imagine in a way. It's simply to remain faithful, looking to the master gardener for direction. And that's what Lent is about, among other things, is is fostering our attentiveness to the presence of God in our lives and to the direction that Christ the gardener uh, provides. And I think it helps in trying to do this to remember a statement by Richard Rohr, who's a Franciscan spiritual leader, that, quote, the opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is control. Now, that's a hard one for me, (laughs) and it may be for you too. But Christ will help us live not as the prodigal's older brother did, trying to control everything, but freely in the light of Christ's redeeming grace and love. Amen. We believe in one God, 